At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. It's Valentine's Day, so we're asking you to think about your love language. What is your love language? The question has become almost as common in pop culture as what's your sign? The date's all about love languages with gifts. It's not really about monetary value. It's more about gestures where I know somebody's thinking about me when they're not around me. That was a scene from the reality dating show The Bachelorette. The five love languages theory on relationships that we all have specific ways we like to give and receive love has been around since the early 1990s. Gary Chapman, a Baptist pastor, came up with the concept after counseling couples. So eventually I took time to sit down and read and work through probably 10 years of notes that I made when I was counseling and asked myself the question, When someone said, I feel like my spouse doesn't love me, what did they want? What were they complaining about? And their answers fell into five categories. Those five categories are gifts, quality time, physical touch, acts of service, and as Oprah discovered, words of affirmation! It says, actions don't always always speak louder than words. If this is your love language, unsolicited compliments mean the world to you. Chapman published a book in 1992 called The Five Love Languages, Secrets to Love That Lasts. It sold more than 20 million copies, was translated into 49 languages, and has only become more popular through online self-help articles and dating app prompts. There's even an online test you can take that will determine what your love language is. Mine is acts of service, if you're wondering. If you take a moment today to donate to your local public radio station, then you are speaking my love language. But new research is debunking the pervasive love languages theory. Turns out they're about as real as your horoscope, and there's no evidence linking love languages to happier relationships. So as we think about love today, what are the myths and what actually works for healthy relationships? I'm WAMU's Esther Chamakili in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast where we get to the <clears throat> heart of the story. Our other love language here at 1A is quality time. So stay with us. We've got a lot to cover. This message comes from NPR sponsor Comcast. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. Getting bogged down by how much new music there is out there? There's a lot. Consider a daily dose of the All Songs Considered podcast. It's the easiest way to get tuned into the music world. We spend hours combing through the new music universe, from emerging bands to time-tested icons, to bring you your next favorite artist. To get up on your music know-how, listen to All Songs Considered from NPR. On the StoryCorps podcast, we believe a lot of the most interesting stories are right there in front of us, waiting to be told. So every week, we share a candid, unscripted conversation between two people around the themes of love, loss, family, and friendship. 
These aren't experts or celebrities, just everyday people like you and me. Listen now to the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. All right, let's meet our panel. Joining us from Toronto is Emily Impet, a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. She's also director of the Relationships and Wellbeing Lab there. Also joining us from San Diego, California, is Nathan Serrato, a life coach with Queer Conscious. And joining us from Atlanta, Georgia, is Mo Ari Brown. They are a licensed marriage and family therapist and the love and connection expert for the dating app Hinge. Thank you all for joining us today. Emily, I'd like to start with you. You wanted to see if the five love languages theory would stand up to scientific scrutiny. So you and your colleagues did a review of the literature. Tell us what you found. Yeah, great. So um, as a psychologist who studies relationships, um, I've always been kind of skeptical of some of these um, popular lay ideas about relationships, including Chapman's ideas. So my collaborators and I set out to review the existing empirical research on the love languages to see if the academic research supports Chapman's key claims or assumptions. And we found 10 studies that kind of directly tested three main claims that Chapman makes. So the first claim that Chapman makes is that people have a primary or a preferred love language. You can think about this kind of like a native tongue. And Chapman developed this online quiz that people can use to determine their own love language. Um, But this quiz kind of forces people to pit the five love languages against one another. So for example, if you went online to take this quiz, you'd have to choose whether holding hands or receiving gifts is more meaningful to you. But when researchers have asked people to independently rate the value of each expression, they tend to rate all five of them really highly. So in real life, when people don't need to make these kinds of trade-offs, they tend to see all five ways of expressing and receiving love as important. So there is no real evidence for that first claim that people have a primary or a preferred love language. The second claim that Chapman makes is that there are five love languages, and there are two kind of main issues with this. The first is that um, factor analyses, which is this statistical technique that researchers use to see how many underlying kind of discrete factors capture a set of data, they all yielded conflicting results, and all of them deviated from the original five love languages that Chapman proposed. The second kind of issue with this is that Chapman generated his ideas based on his experiences counseling distressed married couples. And so this is a sample of people who are all married, mixed gender, likely mostly white, and who share pretty traditional values. And so his love languages don't include anything about providing support for a partner's autonomy or their personal goals outside of the relationship. And we know that these things are associated with increased satisfaction and might be more meaningful to couples who share more egalitarian values. So his reliance on a pretty limited sample of couples may have led him to miss out on other meaningful ways that people express and feel love. Mo, I want to bring you into the conversation now. How have clients brought up this love languages theory over the years in your couples therapy sessions? Yeah, so this book often comes up in the early stages of couples therapy. I think people are often uh, curious and excited about the idea of learning how they're different. They usually are coming into therapy kind of like what Emily said 
pretty on the uh, right on the head that they're coming in distressed or in some type of conflict. Usually, usually people don't come when things are going well, which I wish they would. Uh, but when they're in conflict, there is this mindset around difference that's often working from a place of deficit. So they're bringing up love languages to talk about difference uh, as an introduction to how they could be showing up in the relationship and it's creating conflict. Uh, and I'm often I'm often guiding them toward other ways of thinking beyond just love languages. But I do think they sh they bring it up as an introduction to the work. What was your reaction when you saw the headlines that researchers were debunking love languages? I said to myself several times, finally, <laughs> uh, <laughs> quite honestly, the this first claim, just that there's this primary love language I've never agreed with, I believe that in order for love to continue to be expansive and to really help people grow together, then everybody has to be fluent in all the ways in which you can express love. And I believe that humans are often in pursuit of the, the same three things, which is usually love belonging, authenticity in all of their relationships. Connection is just very core to who we are. So being able to express love, express connection in all the ways makes so much sense to me. And this is kind of what I've been feeling for so long. I was really appreciative to see the research being done to debunk a lot of this, uh, this theory that needed to be updated for modern times. Nathan, why do you think the five love languages theory became so popular over the last 30 years? Yeah, I think it can be very validating to recognize that, oh, hey, I do experience love this way. I love to experience love through touch or gifts or whatever your love language has been defined as. And so when people read these books or take these quizzes, it's really validating for them in their experience of love and why they may have been feeling frustrated in the relationship. Um, yet I think, you know, the intention behind it is great. I mean, you can really understand your unique experience with love and it can spark great discussions within your relationships. I think the challenge becomes when there's this over-attachment to finding someone that meets your perfect love language model in order to be compatible. Because like Emily says, there's no evidence showing that compatible love languages will make your relationship any more successful. Nathan and Mo, I want to pose a question to the two of you. Even though the five love languages concept doesn't hold up to scientific scrutiny, do you see aspects of this theory that your clients could still find useful? Nathan, let's start with you. Yes, Absolutely. Um, I would not ever recommend that you read that book about love languages. <laughs> However, you know, learning about the way that you experience love and the way that you like to be shown affection and feel validated in your relationship is really important. And it also sparks really beautiful conversations with your partner about ways that you can improve the relationship to help each other feel seen and heard in that relationship. And so when you can use love languages in that way, I think it's a great starting point for that conversation. Um, again, really just making sure you don't get attached and boxed into that, that that's the only way that you can experience love. Because the matter of fact is there's millions of ways that you can experience and share love with each other. Mo, same question to you. Are there aspects of this theory your clients could still find useful? Yes, I found that it's been helpful for people to begin these introductory conversations around differences that are happening in their relationships. So uh, I think I'm, I meet a lot of clients that are pretty excited about 
a tool that will help them to understand why there's a miscommunication or this breakdown happening. Um, so th- yes, I think in that context, it can be really, really helpful. And like Nathan said, the challenge is to not limit the relationship or limit your ability, your capacity to express love. And I know that that's a human journey that I believe that we're all on this journey to not allow our humanity to really define our expressions of love and that we can expand beyond whatever limitations our humanity presents us with. So when I'm working with couples, I'm often encouraging them to to get to know all the ways in which they have need. Often when you're starting therapy, there's usually one we're focused on, but I try to help them to pivot beyond just the one thing that they're not, they're feeling that they're not getting and seeing all of the the things that they are getting from the relationship. So focusing on strength, the strengths of the relationships help, helps us to shift our focus in the therapy. All right, we're going to take a quick pause here. Coming up, the five love languages might be debunked, but our experts will tell us what does lead to happier relationships. Stay with us. We've got a lot more still ahead. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in-between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. We've got big news for everyone who loves NPR's Tiny Desk. We're giving away a trip to D.C. to see a Tiny Desk concert in person, hotel and flights included. Learn more and enter for a chance to win at npr.org slash giveaway. No purchase or donation required for entry. Void where otherwise restricted or prohibited by law. Must be 18 years or older to enter. Entry deadline is March 28, 2024 at 11.59.59 p.m. PT. Prize valued at approximately $2,300. Official rules can be found at propeller.la slash support. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas, we've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from one of you. My name is Tiffany from San Diego, California, and my love language is music playlist. It's so much fun just hearing new music or giving people music that they've never heard before. And just, it's like, music is just love. Mixtape is a love language. Thanks, Tiffany, for that message. Emily, we talked about the five love languages not being based in any science. Another common piece of relationship advice that you say is a myth is characterized by the phrase, happy wife, happy life. Tell us more about that. Sure. So people kind of commonly experience these ups and downs in the romantic relationship. So we know that some days or some time periods in relationships are better than others. And so I think it's kind of widely believed that when these changes occur in mixed gender relationships, so relationships between a man and a woman, that women's relationship perceptions are going to carry more weight than men's in predicting future satisfaction And this idea is really captured in this saying, happy wife, happy life. 
So I did a project with Professor Matt Johnson from the University of Alberta, and we tested this idea using data from nine studies that assessed nearly a thousand mixed gender couples um, daily for up to 21 days, and then 3,400 mixed gender couples that we assessed annually across five years. And so these analyses included more than 50,000 relationship satisfaction reports. And so we did see that women's satisfaction does matter for her own and her partner's satisfaction in the future, both the next day and the next year. But we also found, and I think in contrast to what many people expect and in contrast to this idea of happy wife, happy life, is that men's satisfaction mattered equally as much as women's in terms of its impact on how both they and how their partner feels about the relationship in the future. Um, and I think these findings are important since they kind of challenge this notion that women's perceptions about the relationship are more consequential than men's and really highlight kind of the interconnectedness of partners in romantic relationships. So I've never really been a huge fan of this idea of happy wife, happy life, since it kind of suggests that women have this special responsibility for the relationship. Um, but our findings really suggest that this is not true, that both partners have the potential to shape the relationship. Um, so it's kind of more consistent with the idea of happy spouse, happy house. Nathan, in your practice, you help queer people step into their authentic self-expression. Why did you decide to make this your life's work? I found that there were really limited resources when it comes to getting support for queer people and the ability to understand the layered challenges that queer people face when it comes to just being accepted in our society, dealing with shame around who we are, not to mention how religion and you know how powerful religion is in our society, how that impacts the way we show up in relationships. So I wanted to be able to provide that resource from a queer lens to help people with those specific challenges because, um, again, there, there's not enough out there. I'm a gay woman in my mid-40s, and I grew up in the 1990s. There weren't many films about queer women relationships that did not end tragically. Nathan, what are some of the common myths about queer relationships or identities that you've seen working with clients? Yeah, I think it, it's, it's fascinating that even in queer relationships, there's still this need to have a relationship look like their straight counterparts. And I think Judith Butler calls this um, compulsory heterosexuality, where one person in the relationship needs to be the decision maker while the other person submits. And so subconsciously, we're still trying to model our relationships after our straight counterparts, when in reality, that's not necessarily what works for them or us. And so when we can switch to a more shared power structure in the home and make decisions together and validate each other together, that creates much more healthy relationships. Mo, Ari, what led you to this career as a marriage counselor and family therapist? Yeah, so I am from the south side of Chicago, the youngest of six siblings, uh, and I didn't grow up seeing many relationships, I would say married relationships outside of my parents. Uh, I hadn't been to many weddings during my life. 
And I got to college and was very, very curious about therapy, relationships, and I wanted to offer something back to my community. So I started my work in Chicago, and that's where I spent a majority of my career until I moved to Georgia because I wanted to really help the people in the place where I grew up to think systemically, think differently about the things that we were healing as a community and how that's been impacting our relationships. Let's head back to our inbox, where we got this message from Hadley. When I was 10 or 11, I remember I somehow became really engrossed in Yahoo Answers, and I had a username, and I would go on there like when I was supposed to be doing my homework and just answer people's questions. I'm 30, I'm gay, I'm in a relationship, and I feel like it's pretty hard to find love advice as a queer person. Um... I don't really see anything that's dedicated specifically to queer relationships. Nathan, this question's for you. What do you hear from your clients about a lack of models for healthy queer relationships or advice geared toward that community? Yeah, generally that that they're non-existent. I mean, we grow up in our lives and we don't really see models of healthy queer relationships in in the news and movies and medias and we're just starting to see that representation in in popular film and tv and so to not have that model is is a little discouraging and so i think the the biggest thing people really want to know is that there's hope for them that it's realistic to have a healthy queer relationship and that it's doable for them Have you seen a shift in recent years where there are more role models for healthy relationships? Absolutely. I think 2015 was the tipping point for that. When gay marriage was legalized, I think things just shifted and we started getting more positive representation. And, you know, similarly to you, it was not often that I would see a gay movie that didn't end tragically, that didn't talk about the the most difficult parts of, of being gay and, you know, partners, um, you know, dying or whatever <laughs> have you, but it usually ended tragically. So, yeah, but I have seen a shift lately in the last decade or so. Mo, Ari, you identify as a transgender non-binary person and have spoken openly about working as a couples therapist while you were transitioning. You weren't sure how your clients would react. What was the experience like for you? Yes. So I had already been a part of the LGBTQIA plus community. So thankfully, I had a large number of clients who were LGBTQIA plus or also allies. Uh, But in particular, when it came to gender transition, it meant that I was um, engaged. I was already engaged in work with cisgender women who were doing trauma therapy. I'm also a sexual trauma survivor. And so that was a large part of my work. And I knew the sensitive nature of the work that I was doing with women who'd had difficult experiences with men. And the some of the conversations I had to have around my gender transition meant uh, offering a very intimate part of myself and being visible in ways that I don't, didn't necessarily normally want to disclose. So I had to say, hey, I'm going to be gender transitioning and we should stay in communication about how this feels for you. And um, and I would say, unfortunately, some of my clients said that my appearance shifting and becoming more masculine, growing facial hair, voice deepening, 
was activating in ways that they were not expecting when they signed up to work with a, a queer woman, not a queer masculine person. And so uh, I blessed them and I thanked them for the work that we were able to do. And they went and found other therapists. So I'd say that that transition for me was definitely uh, challenging to be a therapist and be visible. And however, I, I know for my clients who are were LGBTQIA plus couples, they often expressed how important it was that I was visible and how my authenticity just brought them joy every single week. And so for the people who I was able to stay in relationship with and uh, remain as their therapist, those couples really expressed a lot of appreciation. Emily, when research gets published, it's often about straight couples. Are there studies anywhere uh, that include queer couples. Uh, what are the gaps in research when it comes to queer couples? Yeah, that's a great question. So I will say historically, a lot of the research in relationship science has focused on people in mixed gender couples, often assumed to be um, heterosexual or even called heterosexual, even if they're not heterosexually identifying. Um, that is changing and there is a growing initiative um, to include more diverse samples um, among people from different um, like sexual orientation backgrounds. Um, but yeah, it, that has been something that has been um, a bit limited, um, but something that, that's changing. We're going to head to a quick break. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. I'm glad you said that because nobody says that. Can I just say thank you to you for such a thoughtful interview? Oh, my God. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Bullseye. Interviews with creators you love and creators you need to know. Listen to the Bullseye podcast only from NPR and Maximum Fun. Ever feel like you missed the big point of the last movie you watched? At Pop Culture Happy Hour, a podcast by and for pop culture addicts, we'll talk about the latest and greatest culture in depth. For talking points for your next happy hour, check out Pop Culture Happy Hour, four days a week, only from NPR. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from one of you who writes, On the topic of love language, I'm grateful for the concept. It has helped us to break out of the, quote, Hollywood Disney version of true love, sacrifice, and commitment. Love language embraces the concept of diversity in communicating and expressing love that many struggle with. Uh, Emily, I want to turn to you. You have researched gratitude in relationships, and there is some science behind that. Tell us more about what you found. Yeah, so I have researched gratitude um, along with a colleague of mine, Professor Sarah Aljo from UNC Chapel Hill. Um, yeah, there's a growing body of research really documenting how important it is to express gratitude to a partner in relationships. In some of my newest research um, with Dr. Yubin Park, we've looked at whether it's important for both partners to express gratitude in order for relationships to benefit. And what we found actually is it's really just one person expressing gratitude that creates this kind of like upward spiral um, in relationships, which I think is really cool because it suggests that, you know, there's something that we can do right now, um, sort of irrespective of our partner that's going to um, start helping us build better relationships. Um, another thing that I found in my research is we've looked at sort of 
how people express gratitude to their partner. And we found that it's really important that people express gratitude by sort of highlighting how responsive that other person has been to your needs rather than highlighting the costs that they incurred. So, you know, thanks so much for the drive to work. You know, I you knew how much it was really important for me to get there on time rather than, you know, thanks so much for taking all of the time out of your day. So people really want to feel like um, they're useful and they're responsive to another person's needs. So it's really important to sort of embed that in people's gratitude expressions. Mo, Ari, what advice do you have for healthy communication in a partnership? Yes, I love this gratitude practice. I totally agree. I'll add in uh, emotional emotional language and vulnerability being really important. Sometimes I think we lean out of vulnerability and meet, and sometimes and that looks like offering our our feelings instead of just saying what we're not getting. So we, I encourage couples to talk about their their needs and their wants by also using feelings language that might look like I I'm having a need for uh, more affection. Uh, and that and that would make me feel really happy, or I feel really happy when uh, I receive more affection from you. And communicating in this way allows people to really understand the impacts that their actions have on you. A lot of times when we're in relationships, we're not we're not as aware of the impact of the the criticisms that we give out. Uh, but when someone te- says to us, this compliment that you gave me really lit up my day, we're more likely to do it over and over again. And so I'd say communicating from this very vulnerable space, offering your feelings very freely and um, communicating with that level of intention on a regular basis. Nathan, you help queer people in your life coaching practice why is it important to learn more about our own identity before entering a relationship with someone else? That's such a, a great question because I think, especially with queer people, but not just for queer people, when you learn to love all the parts of yourself, the parts of yourself that you t- were taught were too much, too gay, too weird, unacceptable, then you can show up showing the best parts of yourself in a relationship and understanding what it is you really want in a partner. And when you can do that, first and foremost, you're showing up to you know a, a date or a relationship being the best version of yourself versus hiding the best parts of yourself. Mo Ari, you are the love and connections expert for Hinge, a dating app which has more than 23 million users. If our listeners are single and want to use a dating app to find a relationship, what are some of the things they should think about first? Yeah, I encourage anyone who's looking for love to really ask yourself what it is that you want. Uh, So learn a lot about your expectations and standards for relationships. So not necessarily expectations as in like what the other person has to be or bring to the table, but just like what your standards are that or the line, what's your line that you don't cross in relationships. Um, So understanding yourself and really what you're, you're looking for being and can help you to be upfront from the very beginning about what you want. That's going to help you to align with people who are looking for the same things. People want very 
clear intentions. Uh, they want to know that uh, you are interested in them. So I say be forthcoming about those intentions, even if it feels a little cringy, even if it makes you feel a little vulnerable, you are more likely to be successful if you are just consistently upfront about what you're looking for. And if you are responding and engaging in the relationship in a very uh, vulnerable and obvious way. Nathan, uh, you mentioned earlier about people uh, getting to know themselves first before they put themselves out uh, in in search of a a relationship. And as we're talking about using uh, apps or, or, or online tools to, to build, to find relationships and build relationships, there's also still, surprisingly, the uh, act of meeting people IRL in real life. It seems so analog these days. What is your advice for meeting people in real life, Nathan? Well, one, to do it. Uh, I would say you just need to get yourself out there. I think we're really lucky in a time that there's so many meetup groups and especially post-COVID, I think people are just craving that in-person connection, um, especially focused on on queer dating or queer groups. There's lots of sports leagues out there, hiking groups that you can really find people based on genuine interests. And I think even in queer relationships, it's more common that people start off as friends too. So really go out there starting looking to just to meet people and make friendships. And in that, you never know who you're going to meet. Emily, what should people be skeptical of when it comes to relationship advice? Any red flags they should look out for? Yeah, this is a, this is a great question. And yeah, it's something, I guess I'll bring it back to the love languages because that's sort of how we started this conversation. I mean, I think people should be skeptical um, when there's any advice that sort of tries to put them into various boxes, like, you know, you're a certain kind of person. So what we found in our review of the love languages is essentially that, you know, all of the things that Chapman identified in his book, they're all important to us. And whenever our partner does any of those things, we tend to experience increased satisfaction. Um, so really, you know, we tend to think of love not really as a language, but more like, as maintaining this nutritionally balanced diet where people need like a range of things to be in the best state of health. And, you know, if we apply that to relationships that, um, you know, we tend to, our relationships tend to be better when our partner and we engage in any of those behaviors. So expressing appreciation, providing partner with, you know, words of affirmation, engaging in physical touch. So all of these things tend to be critically important. And Mo and Nathan, I'm going to give you two the final words. Starting with Nathan, what lessons about relationships do you think straight couples could learn from queer couples? That there is no right or wrong way to have a relationship and that each relationship you have to do what's best for that relationship, even if it doesn't meet the status quo of what society thinks a relationship looks like. And Mo, Ari, you get the final word. Yeah, I'd say authenticity in a, in a nutshell. Queer relationships have had to stand against a lot of misconceptions, oppression, challenges from external sources. And um, as a person in a queer relationship, authenticity has been the lesson for us. Authenticity with one another, that means truth and being ourselves, regardless of where we are, who we're with. And um I think that lesson is transferable to all people 
learning to be authentic in relationship can really help you to um, just really enjoy your relationship and not feel like you have to fit someone else's standard. That's Mo Ari Brown, a licensed marriage and family therapist based in Atlanta and the love and connection expert for the dating app Hinge. Also with us today, Emily Impet. She's a professor of psychology and director of the Relationships and Wellbeing Lab at the University of Toronto. And Nathan Serrato. He's a life coach with Queer Conscious. Thank you all so much for talking with us. Today's producer was Anna Casey, whose love language is producing great shows. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Esther Chamakili. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor ShipBob. ShipBob's warehouse management system can improve your efficiency, allow you to grow faster, and save you money all through one WMS platform. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR.